Welcome to the Small Podcast. In this series, we'll be talking to the people forging careers within and solving the problems of private equity and private equity-backed scale-ups, startups, and carve-outs. I'm Jonathan Evans, Marketing Manager for the Small Consultancy, and with me is my co-host, Caroline Hall. Hi. Joining us today from Toronto is Michael Pacheco. Michael's the Director of Sales for AI SaaS platform Trint. Michael's also spent time at Tipco, an intelligent content platform, Path Factory, and Oracle. Welcome, Michael. Thanks, John. Great to be here. Hi, Michael. It's really good to have you, especially joining us, considering the time difference uh, between the two locations. Michael, before we sort of launch into the into the questions, we usually ask our guests just to give kind of a quick whistle stop tour of their career and kind of how they got to doing what they're doing now, basically. Yeah, sure. So um, I'm coming up on two decades of selling high-end software solutions and managing sales teams. I've closed deals from 3K all the way up to 2 million at startup companies up to the, the Fortune 100. I'm a big believer that you can be kind as well as successful in sales. Uh, just be care- careful of people mistaking your, your kindness for weakness. I've always loved mentoring back from the days when I was at Oracle, and that's really what brought me to where I am now with, with management. It was, it was sort of a natural progression. It's always something I've enjoyed doing. I've always found it very rewarding. I've been at Trent for three years in total now. Really like working at a company where I'm not just a number, where diversity inclusion is a priority. And frankly, where we make cool software that content creators really like, and it makes them efficient. It's always nice selling something that people like. And it's always nice to close a sale, but personally, I get a lot more satisfaction from um, the, the individual stories I hear from customers and like the individual use cases of you save. There was a, um, a newspaper out of um, the Eastern US. They, they, I wouldn't say they were struggling, but budgets are tight. And in media, you need to save every dollar. And at the end of the year, they had told us that we saved them um two headcount in the previous year and time savings. So that, you know, when they worked out the hours, not that anybody lost, lost their job, but allowed people to use those hours to work on things that are more important. And I'm like, Hey, that's, I love hearing stuff like that. Yeah. I, I think Trent strapline is something that they caught my attention because it's, it's an like do less of, uh, do more of what you love and less of what you don't, but it's something like that, isn't it? It's which, yeah, really caught my eye. And I think that's, that's exactly well, it kind of backs up what you say there. Um, just to give, obviously, people listening a little background to Trin. So Trin do AI-backed transcription software. So if you're a content creator, you can go to Trint and it will create the transcript. It'll split out different uh, speakers within your content. And it generally sort of saves a lot of time that people would otherwise manually be typing themselves. Yeah, it, that's uh, that, that's it in a nutshell, is what we're trying to be for the spoken word, what Microsoft Office is for the written word. So we want people uploading that you know spoken word, whether that's in audio or video to Trent. We do the transcript uh, very quickly and very accurately. We They can then edit that. There's a lot of, I mean, I don't want to bore you, but there's a lot of editing functionality that, that our customers enjoy. Um, they can then export that to Adobe or, you know, the bigger tools to continue their onward editing. Um, although we do have some fe- functionality for, you know, quick uh, subtitles and captions and things like that. Um, and we do translation as well in 54 languages. Mm. So um, 
it's a global world and not every company, especially actually the smaller companies we sell to who don't have the skill sets, like a strong use case. I'm in Canada, French and English uh, are both national languages. There's a lot of companies that don't have the skill set, unfortunately, to release their, you know, CEO addresses in in French. So it's very easy to spend a little bit on Trent and alleviate that problem. Hmm. I I have a bit of full disclosure here, but you did actually give me access to the platform so we can have a look around before this. Um, and what I liked, which some of the other ones don't have it as easy is, you know, there is collaboration as well across the platform, which was useful and I thought was something quite good. Before we move on, we, we're going to talk a, bit, a little bit about sort of, because you've worked in places like Oracle and, you know, you mentioned you've done those sort of big blue chips, but you've also, you know, been working in the, the scale-ups and the startups. Something you did mention that I wanted to just come back to, you said obviously that DNI is a priority sort of where you are. And just as recruiters ourselves i mean it's always something we get as soon as somebody says do you like i'll go oh yeah that's the, you know the years of pricked up I, I mean what does that mean for trinton the, the kind of diversity and and inclusion piece well it comes right down from from our ceo jeff who's um um who's i mean he's an openly uh gay man um i'm sure he's i don't want to speak for jeff but um He's gone through years where it was not accept- as accepted as it is today. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, I don't want to speak for him, but I know it's very important to him and it's important to the company as a whole. So for example, at the Trent office in London, we have a little board there, which it's not um, uh, it's not mandatory, but it's got a bunch of strings on it and, and pegs and it's to show our diversity. So it's, you know, um, ethnicity, background, religion, whatever you're comfortable putting and you start the peg. Am I male? Am I female? Am I intersex? And you kind of go and we uh, take all the, the the thread down. It's different colored threads. The colors don't mean anything. It's just to make it fun and nice to look at. But we take it all down at the Christmas party. And then during the Christmas party, anyone who cares to go and do it can. And it's really cool to see like the diversity at, at the company. Um, but for actual tangible things that the team, that Trent has done, this is going back a year or so, but they noticed and the, Trent listens to the employees. Some of the employees that said, you know, we're noticed that there's really not a lot of diversity on, on a specific team. Now, the challenge with that was the skill set for that team. Most of the applicants, 90% were white males. So they're like, well, how, what do we do about that? Yeah. So what Trent decided to do, which I thought was very creative, was rather than hiring for the senior role that was mostly white males, was to create multiple junior roles where there were candidates that were more diverse and it's like okay we're gonna we've recognized this as a as an issue we're gonna hire some more junior people that are more diverse we're gonna give them the opportunity we're gonna train them up and we're gonna make the investment in those people and um coming from that blue chip background Mm. i was i was floored because i bet i've never seen anybody even talk about doing something like that let alone actually take action on it that's a brilliant Mm. initiative i love that that's I mean, fantastic. it's something but when we interviewed Miles Lloyd on an earlier podcast and, and he was talking to us about the work they do in, in DNI, that was one of the things they suggested was looking at your hiring and, you know, do you need that one person? You know, can it be broken down into different people so mm. you give more people opportunities into it? I do quite like the idea of people because, you know, getting them involved and putting the pegs in the string because, as you said, it's visual. It is something that, you know, people can go, ooh. I can see that this is changing, you know, because, you know, you're doing these initiatives, but how do you 
convey to people you give them stats and you know they don't remember what the stats were last year but if you've got something that's really nice and kind of visual and in your yeah. face you can you can see it evolving and changing in sort of real time mm. I like and relate that. to it as well you can relate mm. to it yeah interesting yeah. i like exactly. that exactly i think one of the other things we was is how to get senior management on board and we had that podcast before so i think it sounds like it's good that that's coming top down as well with entrance. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, I think that's a lot of help on it. Moving on this like to uh, obviously the sales side of things. So uh, as we just mentioned, it you've worked larger companies um, within sort of accounts and sales, and then you know you've you've moved into some smaller kind of software companies. How do you sort of? view the difference between the two are there sort of main differences in sales or you know are there, is the setup kind of the same between them um no there there's t- tons of differences between them i mean the actual procedural day-to-day of closing a sale is pretty much the same but there are huge differences in how the companies operate um one thing i would say which is something that i mean i've been a long time in sales and i and i know the type of company I want to work for. And it is a scale up type company. And one of the main reasons is there's a little bit of empathy for sales at a small company. There's no empathy at a large company. And what I mean by that, I've actually had this discussion at Trent and other small companies where I've made other areas aware that, you know, sales is the only area where anybody at any time on any day can see the exact performance of any rep, where you are to target, they can even listen to your act, your last phone call if they want to, mm. which for me, I'm fine with it. I embrace it. I think that allows us to move faster. That allows us to fix problems faster. But I'd suspect that I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth, but for most people, if you ask marketing or product, are they, hey, how would you like people to see your progress on your actual progress? Not what you're telling them, like literally what your real progress is at any point in time and be able to view your work as you're working at any time. Yeah. Probably petrifying. Right. So um, (laughs) I've had that talk with a couple of scale ups have been up just to make people aware, you know, on a team call. And then I'll make a joke about, you know, if it's in the quarter, go, go hug a salesperson or something like that. (laughs) Um, And it's usually received well. Um, I gave that little talk at a a larger company I was at and it was not, (laughs) It was not received well. So there, it is a different mentality at a at a bigger company, for sure. And recruitment's very, very similar. Mm. It's 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 so easy to see because you can see how many candidates are applying, all of those stats, and it's so visible. So recruitment's very, very similar. I know exactly what you're what you're going through. So it's the empathy, but for actual tangible things, there are there are differences. I mean, at a small company there's far less process depending on when you're joining the company on their journey. If it's right at the beginning, I've joined some scale ups where it's time to quote a customer and they're like, Oh, we don't have anything for you to quote them with. So you're using an Excel spreadsheet and inserting images and then you PDF it to try and, and it looks like a quote once the customer receives it, but you have to be, uh, you have to be hands-on or you may be, I mean, this is something I dealt with somewhat recently onboarding a partner so we're like oh do we have uh, where's our partner uh, agreement template oh well this is the first one so we've never done this before so we're like okay so it's time to research and uh, create a template that we can use going forward so there's a little bit of you know all, all hands on deck sometimes at a scale up mm-hmm. yeah absolutely okay i think caroline going into the sort of projects that you've done sort of within scale-ups and things I think you can very much relate to that where you know, things that if you're going into the established business will be there but you know as a yeah. career they're not you know so you, you, you're yeah. sort of building those yourself yeah. what do you think 
sits behind that that sort of greater empathy than within the small companies is it just distance because you know you don't have the big distance between teams that you would have in a larger corporate or do you think there's something else i think it is distance it is the size because it's easier to be empathetic when you know the people that you're you're working with um but i i think it's just a, a product of how, how the companies work in general there's like for it's similar that there would be a, if I had a, needed to go to my CFO's office for a pricing approval, they're in London, so I can't really. But in theory, if I was in London, I could just walk right into their office, no need to set a meeting, knock on the door. Hey, you busy? I got to chat with you about the No problem. You could never do that at a Tibco or an Oracle. Just not that there's nothing against Tibco or Oracle. That's just not possible by their size. Okay. So I think it's, um, it's uh, unless it comes from the top, um, there will never be empathy at those big companies. And at the top, unfortunately, they're focused. I mean, most of them are public companies. They're beholden the shareholders. The last thing they're thinking about is empathy. It's it's revenue, revenue, revenue. I mean, in the last podcast that we did, where we were talking to a product leader and he was talking about, you know, the sort of interplay between teams and kind of how that works and how to make sure that everybody's kind of on the same page, you know, within that scale-up environment so you don't have sales going and selling things that product is not their roadmap or, you know, the, the thing that there needs to be kind of synergy between the teams. How do you say the scale-up teams can go about that and sort of make sure that there is that integration? I think it comes down to accountability. I think the people on the teams, the people on my team are accountable to me, just like I'm accountable to them. And it's an interesting point you brought up. That's never been an issue for, for us um, at Trent. So I can't talk to it as if we've experienced it and how we've overcome it. But why I think we haven't experienced it is because people are accountable. Like I, I would be shocked if someone on my team went out and started talking about, uh, you know, a feature that isn't generally available yet. Um, it's just something that wouldn't be done. So I apologize if I don't have a great answer for that question. No, that's good. And, and it, it'll always come down to culture of the organizations. And, you know, if that's already in place, then you won't <laughs> compared to, you know, where where those kind of, uh, and, the, you know, that's what we're talking about it because it was places where those kind of controls weren't in place, wasn't it, Caroline? And, you know, how to build those controls, um, you know, sort of as a founder um, and as a product leader as well. In terms of managing a team in the scale-up then and we talked about this briefly before the recording you know and you were telling us that your team is split between between North America and obviously between the UK as well how do you find managing a remote team initially a little bit challenging until I understood how everyone likes to work and um, I understood the personalities of my reps um, now that I do it's not it's not challenging at all it's, um, you know, we have our one-on-ones that, that are set, you know, weekly uh, for times that work for me here and, and then there. Um, they're always able to get a hold of me when needed. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of have a policy of, because initially there was some trepidation from the UK reps of messaging me too early, um, that I turn my phone off when I don't want to answer. You can mess, you can email me, you can Slack me. And if I don't respond, I'm not online. It's, it's fine. You can go ahead. And I've also sort of instilled, which has really made us more efficient, is um, people understanding urgency. What is urgency? And it's broad, but what's urgent and what's not? So if you send, and not as it relates specifically to me, but I'm never going to email a rep 
at 450 on a Friday and say, hey, can you give me some updates on your deals? Because what am I, am I going to action any of that over the weekend? I'm not. So send that email. Or if you, and if you really want to get it off your plate, just send the email with delay send to, to Monday morning. But just as an example, with understanding what's urgent, we kind of keep our communication to what's important. And if it's not important, it can just wait to the next time we're set to meet. Um, And that works really well for us. Yeah, I think you're completely right in that. And it it is time differences. And again, Karen, you you were talking about your experiences with this as well. A lot of it is being mindful. And it's rather than there being a particular problem to solve, it, it, it is common sense a lot of it in yeah, terms of how exactly. that relationship works it's taking ownership as well you're employing people for a reason and in, in positions for a reason and it's having that trust going i know you can manage x if you need me for y and z to call me that's fine absolutely as you said manage that urgency. i think trust is the important word there because i think days gone by and you know we, we talked about michael you, earlier by you know people can see what you're doing live at any point yeah you know micromanagement was probably a lot more uh prevalent when we were all in the same office you know and people were looking over your shoulder constantly and I think mm. one thing when you do have globally remote teams you know, you do have to build that trust and you know mm. trust that people do it because you can't just sort of keep looking over their shoulder um constantly um something we touch on quite a lot with with sort of other people within this one as well is obviously when you have FaceTime with somebody regularly and you know you're going into an office every day if something's wrong, you can kind of spot that straight away. And, you know, you'll see that somebody's, you know, looking down or somebody's not quite behaving the way they normally do. Do you have any kind of advice for how you'd handle that remotely if you're not having a similar kind of level of FaceTime? Yeah, I think it's important. So it's something I've done and I can't even take all the credit because my my team is great and they were receptive to it. But the, the first thing I did um, at Trent when I became a manager um, was made a really strong effort to uh, connect with the, my team to understand them, like what are their professional aspirations? Where do they want to go? Um, mm-hmm. I kind of joked with them that I'd love for them to all stay at Trent for 25 years and retire with a gold watch, but that doesn't look at LinkedIn. That doesn't happen anymore. Um, so like I want them to ideally when they leave Trent, I'd like them, which will happen one day. I'd like them to look back and be like, hey, I learned a lot. That was a really good point in my career. Um, that's sort of where I'm coming from. And then personally as well, like understand, like asking, because I do care about their life. What are, what are they doing? Someone's getting married. Like it's because I feel that if somebody, and if, there's no ulterior motives behind this, I, I do care. Um, but if I think if somebody believes that their manager cares about them as a person, they're going to be a lot more receptive um, to feedback and to constructive criticism. And that's just going to make the communication um, as a whole better. Um, mm. and, and I and I also made a, a concerted effort not to, and I think this was right, but maybe not. Maybe you guys can give me your feedback. But when I came on as a manager to not throw, to like plaster my knowledge everywhere and be like, what's going on with this deal? Oh, here's what you should do there. And what's going on here? Oh, I've had, experienced this. Here's what you, I'm, I thought, you know what? I, I'm comfortable in the knowledge I have. It will show organically as we, you know, progress and work through these deals and, and these reps get more comfortable with me. I don't need to um, throw it in their face. Um, yeah. And it and it worked for me anyways. Build their confidence. We actually um, spoke to somebody who, again, managed teams in India and, and the UK. 
And one thing they did, slightly going back to your previous point, but she used to organise a a get-together, like a lunch. Everyone's virtually. And you don't talk about work. You can talk about whatever you want, movies, whatever, just even if it's half an hour, just to kind of connect as a team. And I thought that was really powerful because she, as as a head of the whole department, to really say it's okay. There's a sort of safe space to have conversations and not and outside of work if you want to talk about that. Um, so I thought that was a really interesting point. So it's like going slightly back on what you said, but again, the latter point about building that confidence, it's so critical, isn't it? Because then they're going to problem solve themselves while they're running to you every five minutes because they, they have, they're building that knowledge themselves. I love, I think I might uh, borrow that. Uh, yeah, that it's idea. great, that's isn't a, it? That's a great one. And and you're completely right. And that's where it comes down to, it feeds into, I mean, there was strategy, a little strategy behind what I was doing is it goes back to accountability because if people, if they believe it's their decision, because I'll always say, even now with my senior reps, when they come to me with an issue, I offer a few options. And sometimes I say verbatim, like, this is your territory. Do you own it? Mm-hmm. Like, what would you like mm-hmm. to do? Because when it's their decision, they're more invested. They're taking accountability for it versus Michael told me to do this. I guess I'll try it. Yeah. And then at the first, any like resistance from the customer, I'd imagine they'd be like, I knew it. Michael was wrong. Like, so it's, yes. it's better if it's coming mm. from them. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and, and people make mistakes and that's fine. As long as it's not obviously detriment to the deal. But, you know, you know, that's, you know, it's fine to make little mistakes, isn't it? It's always fine to make mistakes, especially with, um, and John, maybe you might've been getting to this, so I'm sorry if I'm preempting a question, but we have yeah. a few a few um, senior reps and a few very junior reps, more junior reps than senior. And those junior reps are going to make a lot of mistakes and that's okay as long as they're learning from them. And I think as a manager, it's helpful to have the thought experiment of where was I 15 years ago. And I wouldn't want someone to judge me from my performance when I was a BDR. Everyone's kind of on a continuum and you might have people closer to here, but eventually they're going to get to where you want them to be if you invest in them and if you coach them and if you help them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I'm sure there's something psychological as well about as you said, going in and kind of trying to be the big I am and, you know, giving your your knowledge and everything, it will turn people off, particularly if you, you know, you do have those senior reps who've been there a while and, you know, think they know the company and, and then is unhelpful from the start, I think. Obviously, going on from the, you do have quite a lot of sort of junior salespeople within there. And we, we'd like to think that people listen to this podcast and go, ooh, sales within, you know, be your sales within scale up. I'm interested in that. I'll, I'll kind of listen to this. A lot of when we talk to different and we've talked to quite a lot of different business areas within this kind of mm. scale-up environment and one of the main themes is that a is very busy and much busier and, and probably more stressful i think is fair to say caroline from from the responses than it is in a larger company or a more established company certainly is that the same in sales or is it you know is it the same kind of pressure or is it similar kind of pressure to elsewhere it's a similar pressure, but it's coming from a different place. I, w- I would say from my experience in the large companies, the pressure comes from the company's not going to go under if Michael's team, which is one of several, doesn't hit their target this quarter. But you get the unwavering, unrelenting, come hell or high water, you better hit this number, even though there's no firm rationale behind it, even though 
at these bigger companies, I was privy to convert. And I know that the number gets inflated the further it comes down the line. So the number we've hit may be the actual number, uh, but you'll still get in trouble. So there's a little bit of that irrationality at the larger companies, which creates stress, I think. At the smaller companies, it comes down to, um, and Trent's very transparent with this with their employees, which I love. There's only a Mm -hmm. finite amount of runway. So when we have our quarterly company-wide people ask and we tell them, and it's sufficient. Trent's in great standing. And we're actually, it's one of our, our best years to date right now. Um, but that's where the stress comes from. Is it like, well, there's one, enter- it's not seven teams. There's one team. And if Michael's team doesn't hit their number, that what does that mean to that runway? And I'm in marketing or I'm an engineer. So there's almost more responsibility on our team to be like, well, we're helping keep everything. I mean, the whole company's pushing the ship forward, but you know, we're closing the sales and, and keeping things afloat. So there's that stress that if we do poorly, what is that? Does the company go under? Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't, but uh, but there's that stress. That's interesting. I, I hadn't really thought about that before, about the inflationary part mm. of targets, I guess. But everyone above you is building in their own contingency, I guess, as yeah. it comes in, yeah. uh, as it comes down yeah. the line. Great point. I actually had a, 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 when I was at Oracle, I got uh, not reprimanded, but I didn't hit my number, uh, but I did well. Um, And I had a conversation with my, my VP and I was like, you know, I I know we hit the real number and this is the inflated number. And he kind of didn't know what to say, (laughs) but um, yeah, it's, it's an odd situation. Yeah, no, definitely. That is really interesting. I think one of the things I would like to move on to the sort of management side, talk about founders and looking at you know if they are looking to scale how you would recommend the sales would be set up but just before we move on to that one obviously Trint and we mentioned earlier are an AI backed you know software solution you know that it is part of the sort of the offering you do and one of the other things that we do talk about a lot you know on this podcast is AI and we see it generally from people within an organization who aren't an AI organization you know so, so they're seeing the kind of more than what you see in the news or, you know, what they've experienced on, you know, using certain tools. I just thought it'd be nice to kind of get your opinion really on AI and kind of where you see it helping, kind of where you see the limits or where you might not see it as helpful, I guess. Yeah, sure. So I completely agree with you. I think most people hear about AI, they read an article, they see something on the evening news and they think of AI more akin to magic than what it really is which makes it difficult for any company that's selling something with AI because the expectations when you go on a demo are sky high. It's like they want, you know, that product to be able to do everything they think it does and, you know, order them their morning coffee. They want everything. <laughs> um, so there's a little bit of, of level setting when when we come back to it and there's or when we do demonstrate the product and what it can do and what AI actually is. Um, there are a lot of limitations on AI. I mean, if you were to ask... I've not done this in chat GPT, but if you were to ask AI, uh, what is the most, you know, quintessential image of a cat? Like what would it get, what would it spit out? Like maybe it would spit out the world's largest cat, an image of that, or maybe whatever image is on the internet that has the most cats in it. Whereas if I asked you a human, you may say, oh, it's a tabby because that's my cat. And my mom had one growing up to me. That's the most cat like thing. So it's, there's a lot of nuance that people don't understand with AI. AI is not, that's what's lost in AI is the nuance. So if you give it a task that's very black and white, it can usually do very well. If you're trying to get it to, um, you know, do something complicated, uh, it, 
it's not quite there yet. I think it's closer to, we, we call it all AI, but I don't think we're at artificial intelligence yet. True artificial intelligence, well, we're definitely not. We're approximating it. It's really more really good machine learning and marketing calls it AI. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I like that summary. That's good. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And Karen, I will tell you, I spent a lot of time researching AI stuff and playing around with various things. Um, partly out of, uh, oh, is this the thing that's going to replace me? <laughs> you know, yeah. I, you know keep on keep in front of it. Let's go. Um, but generally, it is, it is a kind of curiosity of, of, of sort of what things will do. And you're right. It is the average person. How do you explain prompting to somebody, for example? For example, if you're using a language model or you're using, you know, an image model, because people don't talk like that. You know, they want something that they can write a sentence into and it will come back. But as you said, it's that's not necessarily going to happen with how it interprets it. And you can, though, I did find you can type, you can ask ChatGPT to shorten your prompts to what it thinks is the important bits. And that's really useful because you'll type in a long prompt and then it'll basically show you the bits that it's relying on to create that output. Then you can just iterate your output based on, oh, well, this is really the only bit you're focusing on to make that answer. Those are the bits I need to make sure I'm varying. And then, like, if you look at how image tools work and prompts for those, they're very much in that, you know, they're not written as a, draw me a picture of flowery landscape. You know, it's very technical of, you know, the the kind of camera length that you would have, you know, if you were taking it as a photo, what kind of lighting you want. And it's very much a series of single words with commas in between. This is definitely an interesting one. Interesting, yeah. I think it comes down to the application. Like where, what are you using AI for? So like if it was Trent, mm. like Trent's AI, um, or, you know, our speech to text, very useful if you're, you know, right now, or the US um, election season's kicking off. If you had some interview mm. with Donald Trump, and you're, you need it done in real time and your head office is 2000 kilometers away and you want them receiving the transcript as you're talking to them so they can verify and be first with that news to put it on. So, and I could go on, but that's a good use case, right? For Trent's AI. A bad use case is I'm, you know, recording my, you know, my breakfast order at the coffee shop. Like that's not, <laughs> it's not useful at all for that. So like, what are you using it for? Yeah, no, definitely. And that's come up again before, isn't it? And people using it because it's there. But then it's undermining long-term behaviors, for example, because you're relying on it for something that should be something you do as a human, and then you kind of lose those skills. And I think that's where, although if it can understand Donald Trump perfectly, then it's obviously... I was going to say, I love the way you use verify. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what did he really say? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think there's risk in the unknown. Well, the, um, like, it's sort of the, the black box problem which i'm sure you're probably familiar with with ai that you know once it becomes so intelligent that it's teaching itself we're removed from the process so it delivers an output how confident can we be in it so to put it into the business world of scale-ups who wants to be the first company that uses ai to manage their marketing communications and risk you know gdpr violations and things like that Mm. i i certainly wouldn't want to be an early adopter of that how much risk are you are you open to and especially because they've done studies recently, and they were the they found that the more they train AI on AI related data from that output from that model, the quicker it degrades. So something like the entire model collapses over five iterations without human input into it. So yeah, it's, it's, that's it's, interesting. It's, 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 be careful. 
that was a bit of a diversion on AI, but it, I thought it was a really good opportunity because it comes up on almost every podcast that we do because it's something that everyone's got an opinion on. And there's, as you said, there's mm-hmm. a lot of myths out there. One Wednesday every month, we have a writer's group where we basically meet up and just talk about AI because everyone's worked up about it in some way, you know, and it's a chance to kind of demystify it and kind of not make it this big scary thing that's going to take our jobs you know that we can understand how it works and we can actually use it effectively so it's just good to to kind of see the other side yeah really interesting so we're going to move on then to you know a company has been you know within startup phase and they are really looking to scale you know with that they're going to have to scale their their sales team what advice would you give to someone in that position in terms of scaling that sales function what do they need to put in place before they do it i'd say that um in my opinion, uh, process should come before people when adding a bunch of headcount. I've been at places where or one scale up in particular that did really well one year. And then everyone thought, well, this is great. Look at all this. This is double the revenue we thought we were going to get. The boards that, you know, increase the targets. They're like to hit those targets. We're going to buy a bunch of software. We're going to get a bunch of people. We got all that stuff and then we had a different problem is now we had a bunch of software we were paying for that wasn't implemented yet. So that took quite a while. We had we didn't really have a fully fleshed out onboarding process. So we had these people, whereas before um, it may have been me or it may have been, you know, a senior person on the team that sort of buddies up with somebody and shows them the ropes. Works perfect when you're hiring one person at a time, not when you're hiring eight Right. So it's, you know, get all that process in place first. Um, I would also say you would need need, involve your marketing team. That's something that my, the other company didn't do um, because that's where the leads are coming from. Do we have stuff for these people to work on? Like more, uh, more bums and seats does not necessarily equal more closed deals. Um, You may just be um, giving everyone on your team a a smaller slice of the pie. Um, so, and it may be anecdotal cause this is my experience, but we're expanding right now in trend and we're doing it slowly. We're doing a couple, where does it make sense? So we expanded in the DAC region, um, Germany over there and got a German speaking mm. rep. And I'm like, that makes sense. We onboarded them and we're doing it. You know, we're looking at our territory. Where do we need more coverage as opposed to let's just get more people. Caroline, I think you probably can completely agree with that one from, from your experience. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's, let's say, you, you know, you 12 people, you've got to budget for 12 people. You don't just hire 12 of the same, as you said, it's right. Okay. That skill set's filled. Oh, actually we've identified we're missing this skill set between us three. Now we need four, you know, and you just build up from there and you recruit as if you're starting the, the hire from scratch. And that's how I've done it. When I've had to hire 14 product managers, senior product managers in India and the UK, and it was literally one at a time. And you fill gaps as you go and you realize, oh, actually, we're missing a, a, a sort of personality set. It's not just a sort of skill set. It can be personality. We need someone really strong, you know, because the team's quite junior or whatever it may be um, going on. But uh, I think that's really key. So that's that's from my experience, how, how I've done it. It's been very, very effective. I think the process point as well is, is definitely critical. And it, I mean... It's the same in recruitment, isn't it, Caroline? You know, mm. you don't just go into a 
a business and start hiring, for example, you know, you need that process before you even build your strategy sometimes, you know, because you need to know yeah. what you can do and what those touch points are to even know what strategy you can put over the top of that, you know, to yeah. get to where you need to. Normally it's whilst frantically hiring because you need, you know, you need to do it at the same time. So you're doing a bit of both. So uh, that's fun. Yes. You never get the ideal world, do you? <laughs> it's like, especially now in scale-ups. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And actually, on I'm I'm trying to get ahead of some of that right now because we are planning on hiring more. We have we promote from within. We've had BDRs obviously right. move into sales roles, but we've had BDRs move into marketing. We had one move into engineering. Trent, they were super bright. Ooh, person. That's interesting. Yeah, they were. Uh, they said they were willing to go back to school. I think I believe they cut back their hours while they were going to school. They came in at a junior wow. level, and now they're a senior. Like it's really like a and. All, all the the praise goes to that individual that put in that Herculean amount of effort. Um, but that that happens at Trent. So like we looked at nice. it, promote internally first. We have a couple BDRs right now who are candidates. So I'm I've one still enjoy mentoring. So we have like um, biweekly mentoring sessions with the BD I do with the BDRs that are of interest. And then you know, slightly ulterior motive is I'm seeing who's showing the you know the dedication who's doing their own self-learning because it's totally their set their session they can talk about whatever they want whatever's interesting in, to them in sales they can ask me hey mike how do you negotiate a contract we can go through but it's great for me to see who's you know the up-and-comer who's the person that will tap on the shoulder next when that role comes available yes yeah, fantastic absolutely yeah. because they know your culture the cost of recruitment is is can be a lot the training and everything else so that's fantastic it's great it's different though, because I mean, a lot of people say they recruit from internal, but you don't tend to get that link up before mm -hmm. they do that recruitment internally. So that's really interesting that you do that kind of mentoring, because mm -hmm. I don't think a lot of people who recruit internally would do something like that, you know, to get that eyes on the ground, you know, at exactly who would be able to go into those roles. That's that's future proofing, isn't it? You're hiring. A little bit. And I mean, I do, they're not reporting to me directly, but I care about all the people on the commercial team. And mm -hmm. if I can give them some skills. Some of the people I approached with this, you know, mentoring opportunity, they politely declined. They're not interested. They, they're happy as if one person was happy to stay as a BDR for the time being. Another person, it turned out, was more interested in customer success. They just hadn't talked to anybody about it. So I set up a similar session that they would have with me with the head of customer success. But if you don't ask, you don't know. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Great point. Yeah. I mean, it's something that happens at a higher level normally. So you're looking at people replacing kind of sea level or you know at least management mm. level and it's called it's called succession planning isn't it caroline which is of course yeah strange a strange name um but it, it makes it sound like something from the godfather the <laughs> succession planning <laughs> but, but generally that doesn't happen at, at, at kind of that lower level does it you know it's just kind of at best you normally get somebody will throw out a, an internal email going oh you can apply to this role with no kind of expectation of who oh, i know xyz person because i've been doing this with them you know for years so yeah i think that's that's kind of really important just going back slightly and obviously you touched on this there's if you don't get the things in place you know there's a lot of options for wastage there you know you've got the people not having things to work on you know if you're not doing that piece of linking teams together before it happens if you're hiring people too early again you know you're not having time to train them or you know they don't have the processes they need to be able to work so again you've got people looking around you potentially bought tools that aren't getting used you know you've got that kind of spend i just want to highlight that because i think that's a really critical point that you raised there is 
if you mm. don't do that process bit first there's a potential lot of wasted spend which obviously comes from your the investment that you've got as you know as a mm. company uh, uh to do it um are there any sort of other uh, sort of practical advice sort of tips you give to people who are you know going through that kind of really early scale-up phases yeah, I, I would say, in my opinion, it's important to manage each one of your reps differently. I found in my career almost to a manager that, and good for them, they've gone to that role because they've been successful, whatever methodology they followed. But most of them believe that that's the only way of doing things. And they try and mold their reps into the mold of them. Um, and everybody's a little bit different. Um, I have people on my team who are you know, type A personalities who are, you know, when I'm meeting with MI, it's better to, you know, be brief, give them the information and be gone and have it be a short meeting. They respond better to that. I have other people who um, need a bit of a, yeah, I have to show, you need to show them you care first. You can't just jump into things. You need to uh, have a rapport with them on each call. How was your weekend? How things go? And then you can jump into stuff. I have other people that if I don't give them details, they're not happy. It can be the best call best one-on-one or meeting in the world if i'm not giving the details at the end they'll be like okay so michael you said this where's that coming from and you have to give them details so that they understand so in how i interact with them needs should be unique to the person but also how i coach them and how i help them improve because everyone has different skill sets um and it's tempting i think for some managers to really drive on the weaknesses, which of course you need to, you know, go after the weaknesses. But I almost look at it from like a sports perspective is you don't want them to work on the weaknesses to the detriment of of their strengths, Mm -hmm. right? If if you have someone that's, I mean, I'm in Canada, although I'm not a big hockey fan, but if you you have someone who has an excellent slap shot, you're not going to tell them to stop doing it and focus on all the other, you want them to keep that excellence, but also improve elsewhere. So like how, you know, practical example of how I did that with one of my reps outstanding rep he's hit his, he's surpassed his number each quarter this year he's actually just hit his yearly target last week so halfway through the year he hit his target he's doing great but last year was pretty bad he put up put up a zero at one point in time the issue was he's very aggressive a little too aggressive at times it, not for my taste but for for others during the sales cycle and there was a, a small adjustment is one we're, we're working on that and he is better on that but the adjustment was Trent has compliance deals where customers are over-licensed. They're using more than they're paying for. And he's an excellent fit for that because you need somebody who's a little more aggressive. And he has closed, geez, well, I can't give amounts, but a lot of money from, from yeah. those deals. <laughs> and it would have been very easy to, to peg him as not a good fit or this guy doesn't get it. But like after you talk to them, you understand the person, you see where this is coming from you can manage them and coach them and make them successful. Mm. That's really interesting. It's the only way to find that out, basically, time. And, and as you said, is spending that face time with them, talking to them and coaching them. Or do you, like, ask them outright, you know, how do you like, what do you want from a manager? You know, how do you want to be receive mm. things? For a long time, every one-on-one I've been having with my people, I always ended or near then ask them, you know, what can I do uh, to make working with me easier? And then I implement... Mm what they say. I mean, if it's reasonable, if they're like, pay me more money, I'm like, like, can't help you there. But if it's, uh, if it's, you know, it'd be helpful. It's one of the ones I got. Oh, one of the ones was it would be helpful if we got our contract reviews back 
within 24 hours in the day that, and that's something I could implement. Actually, the slowdown was our, um, our outside legal counsel, but uh, we talked to them and we rectify that, right? So mm-hmm. things that are actionable, I'll, I'll take action on that. And I think that goes back to the accountability that I'm being accountable to them. And I think that builds kind of that social reciprocity that now they feel like they need to be accountable to me. Yeah, I, I I really like the word accountability, and it, it mm. again it mirrors our last podcast. We were talking to someone in in I said a product leader, and accountability came up, you know, frequently in the environment that you're in. You know, within that scale up, it is it, it does kind of drive everything, doesn't it? Uh, you know, to make yeah. sure that anything gets done. I also, I mean, we again, you know, Caroline will probably agree with me on this, you know, because. Even working in house recruitment, you know, we most of us started an agency at some point, mm. and you know, so we're doing that sales, and it, it's that individuality that you know we we always said you know it's missing sometimes in recruitment and how you train people because you get one set of KPIs that are how everybody has to work regardless of you know if you're really strong on phone calls, you're really strong at you know sending out emails, you're really strong at building relationships you know, everybody has the same KPIs that aren't based Absolutely. around around what they're like as an individual. And it sets people up for failure, essentially, at the start, yeah. you know. And as you said, it's not necessarily that they're not a good fit. You're just not taking the time to understand what that fit is and where their strengths and where their weaknesses are and using them better. Yeah. And the benefit of time, because in sales and, and recruitment is very similar, you don't always get that benefit of time to grow and develop. And what is my sales strategy? What am I good at? As you said, picking mm-hmm. out your strengths. And unfortunately, a lot of businesses don't have that flexibility of saying it's okay, but you've got, you know, a year to build up because they've got targets to hit. Mm. So that's also the challenge, isn't it? Is giving that person the the breadth to be able to go, yes, I'm building, building, building. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, and I think that like to tie in recruitment to, to what I do and, and how I give, why I think I should give, I try to give my employees as much time as possible is I think we have a great recruiting team at Trent. I'm a part of the hiring process. A lot of smart people are part of the hiring process. We review right. a lot of candidates. Somebody comes on, we think they're the best one. I'm not, I don't get amnesia two months later of thinking that, well, this maybe there's somebody better out there. Like we did a full search. This was the best person. So let's, you know, give them some time. And as long as that person, there's a few, you know, non-negotiables for me, you know, showing up on time, giving a full effort, caring about your work. And as long as you're doing those things and, you know, when you make a mistake, you learn from your mistake, I'll get, mm. I'm happy to give someone more within reason. I mean, you can't give somebody years, but I'm happy to give no. them time to improve. What is your current recruitment process? How do you go about it? How we find them? I'm not sure. Mm. That's uh, Hannah and a few others are mm. awesome. And Daisy are great recruiters. But mm. once they come on for the interview process, the first one is with the hiring manager. Then for us, because it's sales for the VDRs or sales, um, it's a short presentation on what they're currently selling. I despise when people make, you're setting someone up for failure, in my opinion, when you make them present our product. So not only do yes. they have to present something that they don't understand. And so like, what are we testing their Googling ability? Um, but they're also, they're presenting it to people who are experts. Like it's a bad idea. Uh, so they can present whatever they're selling now or whatever they want. Really. I've had BDRs present, uh, like I had one that present a stapler, like, so which is, it's fine. But wow. It can, it can be whatever you want. And <laughs> then there's after that presentation that we give them feedback if they would like, and there's a few more questions 
that after that interview, we do a culture interview. So that's pretty well the last, if you've made it onto the culture interview step, things are going quite well. So that's no management on the call. It's just their peers. So they can ask real questions if they're comfortable with it. Michael seems like a nice guy. Is he really a jerk or I don't know, whatever they want to ask. Because we're not trying to trick anybody. At least I'm not. I don't yeah. want to choose someone to come on and say, oh, this isn't what a, you guys led me to believe it was. And then they leave in a month. Like, that's not good for anybody. So, yeah. So the cultural interview. And then usually that's it. Sometimes, depending on the role, they'll kind of a rubber stamp sort of interview, for lack of a better term, with, uh, you know, someone higher up VP or C-level. They'd like yeah. to just meet the person. But that's like a 10-minute meet and greet. And that's yeah. it. It's not not a very cumbersome process. No, it's, it's good. This is to both of you, actually, because obviously, you know, you've both done that kind of recruitment piece across different countries. Do you get kind of pushback on the fact that it's one process that governs different countries, you know, that have different expectations, mm. different kind of cultural differences? I mean, even if you look at the way CVs are used between America and the UK, typically a resume in America is no longer than two pages, if it's two pages at all, you know, one page is better written a bit less five pages if you see yeah. Yeah, quite easily you know and nobody really batters an eyelid do you ever get any kind of pushback on the fact that it is that kind of holistic one process fits all i've never had any any pushback on it no i think you can being in a small organization like a startup there is more flexibility and you can be a bit more agile and cater to that country so the cultural fit and like we were saying, between cultural differences and how they're interviewed and, and it could be picking the best time of day for them and not necessarily for you. With large organisations, there's much more red tape to follow certain procedures with regards to interviews and filling a role and things like that. Whereas a smaller business, you can be much more fluid in your thinking and bring more practices in, looking at the benefit and things like that and... It could be a video. I don't know. There's lots of things you can add to the mix in your in your tool bag that suits that country better. Mm. And it's making sure you adhere to that or bring that to the mix. That's really interesting. I think because my background's always just been UK and, mm. you know, with the odd occasion for it, but I'm only foreign into a country for a specific thing. So it, it, it is interesting to see if, you know, it does have an impact. So even the smallest mm. things in part of the processes can vary so wildly. So um, but it's yeah, interesting both more or less given the same answer. <laughs> just, yeah, 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 yeah. Mine was slightly long-winded. Apologies. No, it's really good. It's really interesting. Michael, we move on to sort of a couple of closing questions. Obviously, you, know, you can give a little bit of information about Trint, you know, if people want to find out more, you know, where they can find that and obviously find out more about yourself as well. Obviously, we have two questions that we always ask everybody. Don't really ask everybody. One, when will the Maple Leafs uh, win the Stanley Cup next? I, I might lose my Canadian citizenship for this one, but I think not within my lifetime. I think we're cursed. I think it's just not going to happen. Yeah, sorry. It, it, the, the, the Toronto Maple Leafs bashing has to come out every time. It's, it's, I'm not. I'm not offended by it. Actually, I, I have a. I don't want to monopolize your tie, but I think funny hockey story. I can tell you. Of course, every kid in Canada plays grows up playing hockey. I didn't. I yeah. grew up playing American football. So my dad took me to the home opener for Toronto's football team. It's Canadian football. It's not American football. So very small and low key. They had this new uh, superstar player that they had just signed. And it was a big deal. This is in the 90s. If you were to Google it, his name is Rocket Ishmael. Because he was supposed to go to the American Football League, the, the big time. 
but the Canadian Football League just offered him more money. So this was, I think, 1990, and they offered him $25 million. So quite a, a bit for, for yeah, back so then. then. Yeah. yeah. So he was on the team. We went to the home opener. Our seats were high, but I walked right down to the bottom, and he was playing catch, and I was screaming for him. I'm going, Rocket, Rocket. I'm screaming for his autograph. He's ignoring me. A trainer comes over and is like, hey, kid, he doesn't sign autographs. And I'm like, get out of my way. I'm screaming for Rocket, Rocket. Another guy to the left of me, there's a guy signing autographs. So he walks over and he goes, oh, don't worry about him. You want me to sign something for you? And I was like, no. And I just kept yelling, Rocket, Rocket. (laughs) My dad comes over and he goes, do you know who that was? And I go, yeah, it was Wayne Gretzky. So what? So (laughs) that's how much I like hockey. (laughs) Uh, Wayne Gretzky is the greatest player of all time, basically. So like he's had records which are stood for like, 30 years, 40 years that like yeah. no one's ever going to beat, like ever, yeah. because he's wow. like scored more goals than entire teams have scored, you know, in, in yeah. like a seasonal thing. Yes. So. My dad, he told that story on a sports radio show and won a free steak dinner and didn't take huh? it at the dinner. <laughs> so. no. That's mean. That's so mean. Yeah. And I, yeah. I, I did the same to David Beckham. When in when he no. just before he met met the skies where to start out Victoria and he came in because I swear years and years ago for Vidal Sassim and I was about nineteen there and he walked in and I said can I take your name and he went uh, it's David and I was like yeah yeah sure take a seat and everyone in the background was like ah! you know <laughs> okay. oh my god it's David Beckham <laughs> and that was obviously pre when he became really really famous but. But yeah, that's that's my claim to fame too. So uh, it's a mutual thing, Michael. We're in the same yeah, yeah. So if you were prime minister for the day, what is the one policy that you'd look to introduce if money was no object? Oh, wow. If money was no object, this actually wouldn't cost any money, I, I don't believe, but there'd be a lot of fallout from it, is I would tax everyone in Canada appropriately. I think it's Mm. insane that personal tax has a cliff. I don't know what it is because I don't make that much money, but that the rates (laughs) increase until I think 500K or so, and then they plateau. Be like, why? Why does someone who makes 600K pay the same as a person that makes 50 million? And I'd make corporations pay their fair share because I think too often it falls down to us to float everything. A great example is stadiums. When stadiums get built, it's public funding for the stadiums, but then when they get sold, that's private. So mm-hmm. how does that work? We fund the stadiums and then get none of the profit. I think that would have a big impact to, or that would have the largest impact to, to all the social programs as well. If they, all of a sudden the mm-hmm. money coming in was tenfold or probably more than that, but uh, we could help a lot of people. Because there are issues like Canada has taken in a lot of um, immigrants, a million last year, which I think is great because they need, you know, they're coming from places that are war-torn, um, but they need housing and that costs money. And um, yeah, there's yeah. a lot of other people that need help too. And I think if they would tax the corporations and everyone effectively, that they could do that. It definitely feels, I feel that's a similar theme to here in the UK. People are saying the same thing. It feels like people are, it's just a change happening in people's expectations, as yeah. you said, not to fall to the just average taxpayer which it does do i mean you look at east as a school it's it's listed as a charity how is that possible you know it's the <laughs> richest you know how how is that you know uh, viable and acceptable so yeah absolutely i think people are really starting to change their mindset it's kind of like it always happens here around uh, christmas time there's all the, the stores would you like to donate to this would you like to donate to that 
And usually I do, but sometimes I'm thinking, I'm like, you, a recognizable store. And I'm like, you had, you know, $700 million in revenue. Should, why don't you donate? And I'm like, yeah. you need my, my dollar? Yeah. Do local yeah. charities. That's what I do. Local food banks and things like that. Oh, yeah. That's the best. Yeah. We do that too. We, yeah. we have dogs. We donate to the local dog shelter and we do a little thing. We adopt a family at Christmas. You're not really adopting them, but you supply all the stuff, Christmas holiday tree, oh, that's dinner, a good idea. presents, stuff like that. Oh, that's nice. I, I made it a Trent thing because our office is 20 people. So we made it an office thing. I always support the, a family anyways, but I said, you know, if you guys want to partake, because it's it's single parent families, we can get a bigger family. So instead of a three person family, because some people donated, we got a five person family. So, and you get, you don't Amazing. always get pic- pictures after, but we, we did for this one. It was really sweet. Um, it's nice. Yeah. Makes a real difference, isn't it? Yeah. I like that. Yeah. It's a really good answer. And I think, as, as Caroline said, it's pretty much the same in this country at the moment. We all know the reason why, but we won't discuss it on this podcast. Uh, <laughs> at the end of the day, it needs to change. and But hopefully, as I said, people, as you said, Caroline, are waking up mm-hmm. a little bit more. That it isn't quite as fair as we were led to believe. And that's all I'm saying on the subject at this moment yes. before we go off and, uh, off and around. Uh, Karen always has to remind me, this isn't a political podcast. <laughs> this question always ends up getting quite political. Michael, it's been it's been an absolute pleasure having you yeah, on the on you. the podcast and, and getting your experiences. If you would just end by obviously telling us where we can find yourself and obviously people are interested in Trent, you know, how to go about getting that ball rolling. Sure. And I'd be remiss if I didn't say it was a pleasure talking to, to you both as well. I really enjoyed this. I'm on LinkedIn if anyone wants to connect with me for any reason, but I suspect people will be more interested in looking at Trent because all I do is really post stuff about Trent on my LinkedIn, <laughs> uh, sometimes my son. Uh, but you can find Trent on uh, Trent.com. That's T-R-I-N-T.com. Um, it's, it's a great tool for anybody who's working with audio and video. If you're an individual user, maybe you want it. If you're a student, if you want it for lectures or something like that, there's a one-week free trial. You can sign up online on Trent.com. There's no obligation. There's also no obligation if you're a company, but you'd have to fill out the form and someone from the sales team would reach out uh, to get you set up on a trial. Those can be longer than a week. It depends how long people need to evaluate us because I think it's a great tool. If you go on the site, I mean, the kind of the who's who in media is using us, but until you use it for yourself, you don't know if it's going to work for you. So um, if you're considering it, I'd suggest you give the free trial a shot and see. Perfect. We talked about this in our previous chat, Michael, but you know, as a, as a podcaster, I find it pretty useful and something I've always struggled with with automatic, automatic transcription tools is Welsh accent because I have a show that's got an entirely Welsh cast of like 20 course, people yes. and it's a nightmare trying to do any kind of transcription work on it because it just comes out as gibberish but my test of trend have been really good so uh yeah oh that's ex- I'm gonna pass that feedback on to our product team that's excellent glad to hear that Michael, again, it's been an absolute pleasure. We'll obviously put links to Trent and obviously to yourself as well in the episode notes if you do want to learn more about Trent or Michael. Uh, But thank you very much for coming on the show and we will speak to everyone next week. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Small Podcast. We'll be back with even more guests discussing their careers in private equity and how they met the challenges of working in high-change environments. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe on your podcast app of choice and leave us a rating on Apple or Spotify.